Last couple of weeks, uh, James and Dave have been speaking about worshipping as an individual. And that's been quite absolutely right to do. But this morning, third and final week on worship, I want to talk to you about the amazing opportunity we have to encounter the presence of God together as we worship him together. So we're going to start off looking at a passage from the Old Testament about people worshipping together that really excites me and really encapsulates our vision for worship. And it's taken from Solomon's Temple, the opening of Solomon's Temple in 2 Chronicles 5. So it says this, Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and saying, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. As the people began to praise God together, as they focused on him and how good and how great he is, so something happened. There was a sense of the presence of God in the form of a a cloud that sort of symbolized and signified it. But there was a real sense of God's presence as they worship together and that's our vision for worship that as we worship together we will experience and encounter something of God's presence together so let's spend a couple of minutes just thinking about what we mean by the presence of God because there may be some people who find it a bit confusing I mean isn't God everywhere so why are we talking about experiencing his presence well as you read through the Bible yes you'll see that God is omnipresent David in Psalm 139 says, Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. God is never absent. But as we read through Scripture, we also see that there are many occasions where individuals and groups of people have an awareness, a sense of God's presence being amongst them that is very powerful and life-changing. One example would be Genesis in... Genesis 28, when Jacob has this dream and God speaks to him and Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. But suddenly he became aware of the presence of God. And what can happen when we're in the presence of God, when we become aware of his presence? Well, anything can happen. We could spend a whole morning talking about this, but here are just a few ideas taken from scripture so the first thing that might happen is joy psalm 16 says you will fill me with joy in your presence second light psalm 89 talks of those who walk in the light of your presence lord that when we encounter god's presence we may suddenly see things differently dave holden last week talked about how sometimes when he's worshiping on his own he suddenly feels a sense of Yeah, I need to do this. A sense of direction, a sense of guidance for specific situations. That's something that can come when we encounter the presence of God. Next, revelation of who God is. The Apostle John was in prison for his faith. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. And suddenly he has an encounter with the Lord. Just seeing the Lord in all his glory. What an encouragement at a really difficult time. We also might find that God speaks when we encounter his presence. So John heard God speaking to him. Very powerful prophetic word in Revelation. Gifts of the Spirit. The Bible teaches that spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. A manifestation of the presence of God. 
That includes prophecy, God speaking to us, words of knowledge, messages of wisdom, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, tongues and interpretations, distinguishing between spirits. One way of, to look at the presence of God is to think, well, if Jesus was standing amongst us now, what could happen? And that's such an exciting prospect, isn't it? Because it could be any miracle, any healing, anything could happen. And yet, he is here. Because the Bible teaches that where even just two or three are gathered, he is here, standing in the midst of us. We should expect the unexpected. At this opening of Solomon's temple, it says that the, the priests had a plan. They thought they knew what was going to happen and what they were going to do. And then the presence of God comes, completely disrupts their plans. Now, in this church, we prayerfully plan what we're going to do. And oftentimes, as we encounter the presence of God, we feel, yes, we are still being led in that direction. But sometimes we have to take a very different turn because we're sensing that the Holy Spirit of the Lord is leading us in a different direction. That's so exciting to genuinely think we don't know what's going to happen. That's a really exciting prospect. And when we gather together, we should expect his presence. See, what's happening in this Old Testament passage is that Solomon has organized the building of a temple with the view that if I build this temple, then God will fill it with his presence. And that's what happened. But what we understand from the New Testament is that Jesus is building a very different kind of temple a temple not of bricks and mortars, mortar, but of lives together in community. In Ephesians 2 it says, In him, Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Every time you meet with other Christians, it's like you've put together a temple. You've put, created an environment in which God wants to, to fill that temple with his presence. Every time you get together, whether it's a reasonable size gathering like this or just in a community with just a few people, God wants to come and fill that environment with his presence. Our modern day culture often focuses on the individual. It's all about my needs, my fulfillment. And we can sometimes end up reading the Bible exclusively from that individual perspective. But what we see in scripture is there's also this sense of God wanting to meet with people collectively. You see that throughout the Old Testament. God's presence with the people of Israel. But also with his church under the new covenant. In Revelation 21, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The story is all about God wanting to meet with people, wanting to dwell with people, wanting his presence to be there with them. That's what we get a foretaste of when we worship together. Matt Redman writes this, each time we gather together, we don't just journey to a church building, we journey before the very throne of God. And when we get together, we can expect things to happen. 
Now, one of the things that can happen when we encounter the presence of God is we get a change of perspective. And I want to just for a moment talk about a passage in Isaiah where the prophet Isaiah experiences this in chapter 6. It's in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah writes. Careful not to get those two confused, Isaiah and Isaiah. Now, we can end up skipping over that little phrase and say, oh, it was just, Isaiah was just trying to benchmark it so we knew when, when roughly it occurred. But no, it's much more significant than that. Because King Uzziah was a great and godly king. He did some really great things. And then he went right off the rails. And then later, he died. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. So Isaiah's, in the year that he died, there would have been national mourning. But also for Isaiah, it was personal. Because some commentators think that Isaiah was King Uzziah's cousin. And so he would have not just been caught up in this national mourning, but he would have, he would have taken it personally. He would have thought, oh, this is, this is just so terrible. Is this, why did this happen? Was there something that I could have done to prevent it? He would have had all those emotions. And then he goes into the temple, presumably to worship, and something happens. It says, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. At this moment of national mourning and personal tragedy, at a real, real low point for Isaiah, suddenly he experiences a sense of the presence of God. And in the midst of all these difficulties, he's suddenly thinking, yeah, Lord, you're in control. You are the boss. You're sovereign over this situation. What a helpful thing to happen just at that point when he's really, really low. And what we're looking for in worship often is that change of perspective. We come into worship sometimes with all our issues and circumstances and things that aren't going very well. And as we begin to worship, sometimes we get this sense of our perspective being changed, of suddenly saying, yes, I know you're in control. You're Lord over every situation. So I hope I've whetted your appetite a little bit for what we can expect and encounter when we worship. But let's think practically for a few moments. Are there some things that we can do that will help us to be able to encounter the presence of God? Are there some some things that we can learn from Scripture that will help us to worship? And I think there are. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at a psalm that I believe is not just a great psalm of praise, but also helps us as a sort of model of how to worship. And that is Psalm 95. And I'm going to go through this psalm in three sections and compare it with something. I'm going to compare it to a a space shuttle flight, if you remember those days. And we're going to talk about three phases. First of all, lift off. Second, orbiting. And third, landing. See, in a space flight, you'd have your perspective altered. You'd see the whole world from a different, a much bigger perspective. And then when you came back to land, you would be changed from that alteration of perspective. And that analogy is like what happens when we worship. So, let's think about liftoff. These very first phrases from Psalm 95. 
Let's think about what the psalmist is saying. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. This is like the psalmist saying, let's take off in worship. What gets us off the ground then? Well, you'll see that the whole focus of these verses is on God. He's, the psalmist is saying, come on, look at him. Look at how great he is. Because often when we come to worship, we can have things on our minds. We can have situations and circumstances that weigh us down. It's like we're coming in at ground level. And it's very, very easy for us to be focused on those things when we come to worship. But the message of the psalm is the best thing that you can do is to take your eyes off your own situation and focus on him. How he's the rock of your salvation, how he's dependable, how he's trustworthy, how he's the great God above all things. And as you begin to do that, it starts to raise you up. Scripture tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You can often be weary and losing heart. The antidote to those things is not to focus on those situations, but to look at him, look at Jesus, consider him, and that raises us up. Something that's also really striking about these verses is the level of energy. Think about the space shuttle and how much energy it took to get it off the ground. And I think what the psalmist is saying is, let's focus with all our hearts and minds and soul and strength on worshipping. That's what helps to get us off the ground. Look at the words and phrases that the psalmist uses. Shout for joy. Shout aloud. Thanksgiving. Extol him. We probably need to explain extol because it's a bit of an old-fashioned word. You wouldn't use it in your everyday um, language. What does it mean? Well, the dictionary definition says praise enthusiastically go into raptures over, wax lyrical about, sing the praises of, praise to the skies, heap praise on, eulogize, rhapsodize, rave about, enthuse over, gush over, throw bouquets at, <laughs> express delight over, acclaim. It's like the psalmist is saying, whatever you've got, just give all of that praise to him. And that helps to get you off the ground. And you'll see that this psalmist speaks of noisy, physical, joyful worship. Personally, I find it really helpful in worship if I can just focus myself, body, mind, soul and strength on the Lord. It's not always easy to do, but to really give myself physically as well. Now, you may be saying, oh, all that stuff about you know, noisy, joyful worship. Yeah, I can see that for somebody, you know, an ancient Hebrew person, yeah, that was their culture. But, you know, we're, we're British. We're all a bit reserved. I just want to challenge that because I think that British people aren't necessarily reserved. 
So I want to show you a couple of pictures of, of um, some people who don't look terribly reserved. Hands raised in worship. Oh no, um, worship of a football team. Or there are um, some ladies from Glastonbury. You can see that they don't look very reserved, do they? A couple of years ago, I went to watch a cricket match, a test match at Lords. This is the epitome of Englishness, of jolly good shot, sir. And the game was at a pivotal phase. England might actually win. <gasps> That's pretty rare, isn't it? They were playing New Zealand, and then suddenly we come to the pivotal moment of the match because the New Zealand star batsman, Brendan McCullum, is coming to the wicket. And Brendan McCullum is an amazing cricketer. And if he gets going, he could totally destroy England. So if he stays in, we're going to lose. If we can get him out, we're probably going to win. So it's a pivotal moment. Everybody's really tense. And Ben Stokes comes in, the England bowler, comes in and bowls to McCullum and bowls him first ball. And it was delirium. It was pandemonium. It had grown men jumping up and down, hugging each other. And this is at Lord's. It wasn't. <laughs> so I just want to challenge as to whether we're really that reserved. I, th I think that we can be much more outgoing in our worship than we often are. And this was just a game. I mean, pains me to admit it, but cricket is just a game. It doesn't really matter if England lose, although Kat will tell you that I get a bit grumpy for, for a couple of hours if they do. But what God has done really does matter. He's forgiven all your sins. You were going to hell, now you're going to heaven. And he is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. He is there every day by your side. Isn't that something worth celebrating? And you may say, well, yeah, but even at a sporting event or a concert, I wouldn't be that noisy. I'd say, that's fine. But let's just make sure that for each of us as individuals, we're giving God the highest praise. Biblical worship is physical worship. Matt Redman writes, every posture in worship says something of the worshippers and the one being gloried in. The raising of hands tells of a soul stretched out high in praise and the worth of the one being exalted. We express something when we worship physically as well. And I find that if people around me are passionate in their worship, that helps me. So I would just encourage you to be like that because that you will help others. And I just want to make a point about diversity as well because your background may be very different to mine. In, round, in Revelation, we, we read about every, people, men and women from every tribe and tongue worshipping the Lord. And it's as if what God has done is so great, it has to be celebrated in every way by every culture. And I just want to encourage you, if you're from a different culture to mine I just want you to feel free to express yourself to worship this great God because he he deserves worship in every way contributions in worship really help us and we'll see how different contributions may help different phases of our worship but in this first phase what really helps us is when people bring things that act like rocket fuel and help to get us off the ground. Help us to take our eyes off ourselves and look at him. So things like prayers that declare how amazing he is, 
thankfulness over what he's done. Scriptures, because Jesus said worship in spirit and in truth. So when we read scripture, we're bringing truth into our worship time. Scriptures of how good and how great God is, they help us get off the ground. Tongues and interpretations, giving us some insight into how our inmost beings feel towards this wonderful saviour. Spontaneous songs that speak of how great and how good he is. Now you may say, well, yeah, but in a gathering this size, I would just find it too difficult to come to the front and bring a contribution. That's okay. You can still really make an impact. In Luke 19, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They began, the whole crowd began joyfully to praise. It will be so great for each and every one of us to be just full on in worship, giving Jesus the highest praise. And it really helps us as well, as James was saying on Wednesday, if you can get here on time. Because it's great to have the whole crowd of us right at the beginning just diving into worship. Sometimes it feels like we're going, five, four, three, two, one, let's take off. Oh, there's a lot of people still coming. It really helps us and it helps you if you get here from the beginning so that we can be the whole crowd taking off together. Let's move on to the second phase of worship, orbiting. The psalmist writes this, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. After all that energy, all that extolling, the psalm moves into a different phase. It's more reflective. It's more intimate. Whereas before, the psalmist was considering God as the great king, Now he's seeing God as the tender, caring shepherd. And there's often a time in our worship when we move from that sort of noisy joyfulness to something that's a bit more reflective. If you think about the space shuttle flight, there'll be that moment where after all that energy of takeoff, suddenly things get more peaceful. And perspective changes, as we said before. You begin to see the whole world differently. Some years ago, I was having a terrible time at work. I was running an IT project, and those of you who know me will know that that's a, that was a bad call right from the beginning. <laughs> and, it, and unsurprisingly, it was going extremely badly, and I feared that I would lose my job. And I was very stressed out about this, felt like my head was exploding. And I went to a lunchtime Christian meeting where there was some worship. And to be honest, I found it hard to concentrate at the beginning. All these things going around, all these difficult phone calls and, and so forth. But then, suddenly, something wonderful happened. My perspective changed. And I realized that even if this project was a disaster, God still loved me. Even if I got fired over this, I had a loving Heavenly Father who would protect and provide for me and my family. I get back to my desk. The circumstances have not changed. But the way I feel about those circumstances has changed. And that's what can happen. Astronauts in this phase of a space flight feel weightless. And sometimes we can have those wonderful worship times where all those cares and burdens, they just don't seem to hang so heavy on us anymore. 
A guy called Ron Owens writes, when we come to worship, we come to a throne and everything else arranges itself around that throne. If we put Jesus central and gaze upon him, suddenly everything else just falls into perspective. And it's important in these phases that we don't move on too quickly, that we just allow ourselves some time to just revel in who he is, his wonderful love for us, how he's in control, and just really enjoy that. The Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in our worship, let's enjoy him. Let's really revel in who he is. So how can we help ourselves in this phase? Well, the psalm is is still very physical in this phase too. Instead of singing for joy and shouting though, it's bowing down and kneeling. It's important that we're still very much physically engaged. I wonder whether an analogy is, if you can imagine that the psalmist would be thinking about a great king who maybe had won a victory coming into the city. And you can imagine, oh yes, the king has won the victory, he's saved us all. You would be perhaps along that road shouting for joy. But then imagine that the king then invited you into his throne room. You wouldn't be jumping up and down and shouting, but you would be expressing your appreciation in reverence and awe. And I think that's kind of the contrast that we get into between these two phases. So in terms of contributions, it's great to have prayers that express his greatness and his goodness and revel in who he is. They have scriptures that speak of God's love and also his majesty. Spontaneous songs expressing our love for him. And again, tongues interpretations that often express our thanks for God and his care for us. Third and last phase, coming into land. Imagine you've gone on this space shuttle flight. You're coming back to the same place you were before, but your perspective has been changed. You're going back to the same home, but you feel differently inside. And what we see as we look through the Bible is that often encounters with God result in change. Let's look at these final verses from Psalm 95. Look at how different these are. It says, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Notice how it changes in tone. The first two phases were the psalmist encouraging the people to come and praise the Lord. But the third phase is God speaking prophetically to his people, encouraging them to open their hearts and be responsive to the Lord. Let's just think about Isaiah in the temple. He's had this wonderful vision of the holiness and the awesome power of God. But then God speaks to him. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah's encounter with God in worship leads to the Lord speaking to him and the sense of mission a sense of change. Isaiah later in Isaiah 9 writes about how of the increase of God's government and peace, there will be no end. As we come and we encounter this God, 
There's no surprise that he wants to bring change. He wants to increase his kingdom. And so he wants to impact you and me and help us to live differently so that we'll be more effective, so that we will walk with him more closely, so that we'll be witnessing to those 880,000 people in our boroughs that don't yet know him. And in this third phase of worship, we need to be very open to what the Lord wants to say. He wants to speak to us. Now, I'm not saying that every Sunday morning is going to be as dramatic as Isaiah in the temple or Moses with the burning bush or whatever. But I think what we can expect is that in some way, God will speak to us and do things among us that results in us leaving this building differently than when we came in. I really love that every week. And that's where you really do come in as well because 1 Corinthians 12 says, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. God wants to use you. He wants to speak through you in a way that is going to help us and change us. And I want to encourage you to to expect not just the presence of God amongst us corporately, which I would love, but also for God to use you and to speak to you. This morning when I was focusing on what I was going to bring, I felt that God was saying that there's some people here who you've God has used you prophetically in the past. You've really known God anoint you in bringing things. And actually, you feel that that's dried up a little bit. And I just want to really encourage you. I feel God wants to break through and use you again. These contributions of things like prophecies and words of knowledge are a great way of saying we've we've seen things from a different perspective. God's awesome rule and reign. Now let's apply them. But it's often better if we bring those things later in the meeting because if you think about our space shuttle analogy, we don't want to be just taking off and immediately focusing back down. We want to spend lots of time just focusing on him and then get to this third phase and say, yes, now what does God want to do amongst us?